0: invite you to turn to Mark chapter 14 this morning t- this morning Mark chapter 14 It's amazing how many different types of insurances you can purchase out there If you have a pet you can purchase medical insurance for your pet If you're afraid of terrorist attack on your house you can actually get an insurance for that the uh, one I just recently discovered was, is called a Kidnap Ransom Insurance. The company that provides this insurance um, has a target mar- market of extremely wealthy people, usually public people, uh, celebrities or uh, public figures. And they explain to, a- as a way of advertising, that there are over 1,000 kidnappings of professionals and executives every year. And the insurance provides for this this uh, family or this target market a ransom payment. So if somebody in their family was kidnapped, the insurance would cover the ransom that would have to be paid to get that person back. It also covers uh, lost wages for uh, spending time searching for the child, uh, reimburses psychiatric costs, and so on. And I'm sure you've heard of cases where famous people have had their children Kidnapped in 2000, a Hong Kong multimillionaire had his son kidnapped. Son was age 19, and and um, after the father paid 123 million dollars, the 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 son was was recovered, and the ki- the kidnapper later was captured and executed. In 1963, Frank Sinatra had his son uh, kidnapped, Frank Jr. Uh, he was age 19, and he was released two days later after a $240,000 ransom was paid. And those ca- those kidnappers were also captured, prosecuted, and sentenced to short prison terms. So there are some people who are public figures and who are wealthy that may recognize the need for this type of, of insurance. And um, while some of these kidnappings may end in death, the normal sentiment, the more normal understanding of these people in this position recognize that people are taking their children for the purpose of getting money for themselves. And so it's hard, and perhaps the hardest thing, uh, I can't imagine something harder in life than to have a child kidnapped and not to know what the outcome was going to be. When Jesus is taken away from His disciples, they must have been devastated they must have thought that this was going to be the end i mean what possibly more could could have gone wrong i mean jesus was supposed to come and set up his kingdom he was supposed to be a political and social ruler of the people of israel and yet now they're taking it seems like that whole plan is all crumbling and so they must have been devastated as if as if someone had kidnapped him and taken him away. Now Jesus had told them that he was going to return and so maybe there was a sense of hope for them but certainly there was great despair on their part. There is a lot of opposition in this world and sometimes it feels like that Jesus is not going to return. It feels as if if, if his promise is real, when is this battle going to end? Is Jesus really losing the battle? And yet this passage I think helps us to see that that although Jesus was treated like a convicted criminal and being taken away from the disciples and eventually crucified and taken away from us for years and decades and centuries, We understand that there is a greater purpose in this and that that ultimately Jesus will return. Look at Mark chapter 14. We'll begin reading in verse 43. Immediately while he, Jesus, was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. After coming, Judas immediately went to him, saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. They laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the Scriptures. And they all left him and fled. A young man was following him wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. Although the Messiah, Jesus, is innocent. He is treated as a convicted criminal. We see his betrayal here in verses 43 through 45. The uh, Judas comes as one of the twelve disciples, and he's accompanied by notice the middle of the verse by a crowd with swords and clubs who are from the chief priests and the scribes and the elder and the elders. Jesus had pre- predicted that he would be betrayed. At the hands of sinners and given over to the hands of sinners. In verses 18 through 21, he had just told that the disciples that the betrayal was imminent, that it was coming soon. Look at verse 42. Get up, let us be going. <clears throat> Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Remember, Jesus was praying <coughs> at the, at Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives, and his disciples had been falling asleep, and finally he he gathers them together and says, it's enough. It's time. The betrayer is here. And what we find is that even while Jesus was saying these words in verse 42, that Judas is on his way with the crowd. He's on his way with the officers we know from from Luke chapter 22, that the temple police also came along with this crowd. In John 18 verse 3, it tells us that the Roman soldiers were here too. So it wasn't just a citizen's arrest or something like that. This was actually Roman soldiers coming on behalf of the Roman governor and, and the temple police on behalf of the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders. And they were coming to make this arrest, to make sure that Jesus was seized. Now, they were probably given warrant by the Sanhedrin. They were given a warrant for his arrest by the Sanhedrin. And I say that because of verse 43. At the end of the verse it says, That this crowd, who were with swords and clubs, who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, so the Sanhedrin themselves probably didn't come out with this crowd. They simply sent sent, uh, these men with a warrant for his arrest, saying, "We have, or you have, the right to take him by force. Bring him back to us. We're going to put him on trial. We'll see this next week. We're going to put him on trial." And then we'll determine what his fate is going to be, which obviously they had already determined what they wanted to do. They had been seeking for an opportunity to destroy him from the time that they recognized that he was claiming to be the the Son of God, the Messiah. Chapter three, verses one through six. We see the very first time when they want to do that. they They say that it says that the the people there were looking for ways that they could destroy him. And so this has finally come to a climax. This is the opportunity for them to seize upon that that this Judas, this betrayer has come and given over Jesus to these people. And so they send out the officers to to take this man by force. But also in this crowd, I think there are the temple police, the Roman soldiers, um, Judas of course, but also I think there's simply some common people just some, some people who were in the crowd who knew this man, and they were also coming with clubs and swords. <clears throat> May have been some of the same people who had listened to Jesus preach. May have been some people who <clears throat> had watched him do some miracles, and yet now they're coming to make sure that he is taken by force. But the most striking person that's a part of this group, of course, is Judas. And Mark records this, I think all of the Gospel writers record that he is one of the twelve. They specifically state it as, in, in those terms to show how how uh, drastic this is. For someone who, to have followed Jesus for all these years, two or three years of Jesus' ministry, and yet now he's betraying Him. <clears throat> the crowd had turned on him, we can understand that. The Sanhedrin had turned on him. We can understand that, but for Judas to betray his master is—it's kind of hard to believe. And so Judas, in verses 44 and 45, gives a signal to the the people. It was probably dark, as I've said before. They probably didn't have great uh, 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 flashlights or anything like that—a way to to pour some light on the face of Jesus. And so Judas said, "Here, I'll show you who he is." I'll go up to him and give him a kiss. And that's what he does in verse 44. Now he who is betraying him had given them a signal saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And after coming, Judas immediately went to him saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. For a servant to kiss a master was very customary during these days. It would be like a student to a teacher. It was a way of showing respect to the teacher. And so Judas shows respect both with the kiss and with calling him teacher, rabbi. And yet the very uh, way in which he shows respect is also the very act of betrayal. It's a kiss with a sting. And so Jesus, as a result of Judas' betrayal, is arrested in verses 46-49. Notice how forceful they are with Jesus in verse 46. After coming, Judas immediately went to him. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 46. They laid hands on him and seized him. Judas had told them in verse 44, you need to seize him. That is, stop him from what he's doing. Uh, take charge of him. Lead him away under guard. Now, you can't just say, come along with us. He may, he may skirt on you. You need to make sure that you've seized him and that he's led away under under guard. So that's what they do in verse forty six they they have a forceful arrest arrest on Jesus. And what's interesting here is verse forty seven that Peter tries to protect Jesus, doesn't he? verse forty seven, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now we know this is Peter because uh, John tells us that in John chapter eighteen. And apparently, Peter brought his own sword. Now, this This is kind of surprising if you think about it, because you wouldn't think the disciples would be men of violence. But it was common in those days for people to carry swords, particularly when they were traveling quite a bit. They would use them to protect themselves against robbers who were up in the the hills or something in Samaria as they would travel. There are lots of places to get uh, ambushed, and so they would carry swords as protection. In fact, we know this is Peter's sword because of Luke chapter 22. Let me ask you to turn there with me. Luke chapter 22. Okay, we have the crowd coming in verse 47. And uh, Jesus asking Judas in verse 48 if he's going to betray him with a kiss. And verse 49, when those who are around Him, that is the disciples, saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the slave off the high priest and cut off his right ear. See, the disciples asked Him, shall we strike with the sword? Would it be right for us to to stop this from happening? You said that You were going to set up Your kingdom. That You were going to be the political ruler of Israel and that You were going to pull us out from under the... The oppression of the Roman uh, system. And, and so Peter asks, Shall we use our swords? So apparently, Peter wasn't the only one with the sword. Apparently, the other disciples had them as well. In John chapter 8, you can turn back to Mark 14, but in John chapter 18, John records for us both the name of the person who struck with the sword and the person whose ear was cut off. Peter was the one who struck with the sword, which we should not be surprised by. He's always uh, acting quite rashly and uh, sometimes irrationally. And, and the person whose ear was cut off was an officer by the name of Malchus. And uh, many people believe that, many commentators believe that Peter was actually trying to cut off his head and that he... Either ducked or moved out of the way and, and only was able to get his ear. Now, Mark doesn't record for us that Jesus rebukes the disciples for their overzealousness. He, he does record the rebuke for uh, the crowd for coming to him and trying to arrest him by force, but the, he doesn't record that, that Jesus does rebuke the disciples here and say, Listen, I'm okay. You don't have to fight for me. But, but this is interesting here, I think, because of what had just happened happened to Peter. I, I envision Peter is trying to be like Samson. And he's saying, listen, I will protect you whatever it takes. Even if I have to go through the whole crowd, I'll take them all myself. Send them all my way. I will be willing to die if that's what it means. And I say that because of verse 29. Look up to verse 29. Remember, Jesus said that, that all will fall away when the, when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will be scattered. The idea is that you're all going to leave me at some point. But don't worry, I'm going to bring you all back to myself. And Peter says this in verse 29, But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus says, yes, you will verse 30. And then look at Peter's response in verse 31. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the the same thing also. So imagine what Peter must be thinking when they're coming to take Jesus by force and with the understanding that the disciples think that that the kingdom is still coming in their lifetime. They think that Jesus is going to be on His Davidic throne that is the throne of David soon, like, like now. And so when these people come to, to take Jesus by force, Peter's saying, See, Jesus, I will do anything for you. Pulls out his sword and begins to strike one of the officers and misses and hits his ear. See, Peter's trying to show that, that he really is serious about going to the death for Jesus. And although his intentions, I think, were good, his method was not. Because true disciples of Christ do not seek for God's purposes to be advanced by the sword, by violence, by force, but rather humbly through God's providence. And so we don't have to force someone to come to Christ. We don't have to... Go with them by force and twist their arm. In fact, that's not a valid way to see someone come to Christ. Instead, we humbly trust in God and see him work through His providence in their hearts to change them. So although Mark doesn't record the gentle rebuke of the disciples, Jesus does in verses forty eight, Jesus does record the or Mark does record the rebuke of the soldiers, excuse me. In verses 48 through 49 at the end of verse 48 he says uh, are you doing this as you would a robber as you would come to get a robber apparently what they were doing was treating him a little bit harshly a little bit more harshly than he would expect because he was no revolutionary was the idea Have you come with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would a revolutionary? I'm no revolutionary. Look at verse 49. Every day I was with you in the temple teaching. You did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the Scripture. See, you didn't seize me then. Why are you trying to seize me now with such force? You see, a revolutionary would not be so overt in their teaching. It would be more subversive, more a covert operation. They're building a revolution against the government. And Jesus says, my teaching was in public. Why didn't you arrest me then? Why are you coming now? I haven't done anything differently than what I had done there in public. But still through it all, the end of verse 49, Jesus recognizes that it was all part of God's plan, wasn't it? It was to, as he says, to fulfill the Scriptures. He recognized that not just the greatest things that happen in life, not just the big things that happen in life are controlled by God, but all things down to the very betrayal by his disciple Judas and that it would be done with a kiss. It's all a part of God's plan. And before we bring down too much judgment, upon the disciples we need to ask ourselves how would how would we have responded if we thought that 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 this life was all there was to live for that that, that Jesus and his reign was was happening now and that, that this is the final thing it's amazing to think that Jesus was so calm in these circumstances despite things seeming to spiral out of control Jesus Acts very calmly. How would you have responded? If, if all that you had to live for was this life, and that your purposes were to accomplish something great in this life, if that's all you were living for, how would you have responded when someone comes to take you by force? From a human perspective, we would expect Jesus to go down swinging. That He uses brings in all the cavalry but notice how he responds in Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Instead of going down swinging as if this is the end of it all, Jesus withholds His power on these people. Matthew chapter 26. Here is this rebuke I've been talking about to the disciples when... Peter strikes the man with the sword. Verse 52, Then Jesus said to him, that is Peter, Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once put at My disposal more than twelve legions of angels How then will the Scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? Instead of going down swinging, instead of using all of His force to stop these evil humans from doing what they had planned to do, instead Jesus shows them that, listen, I have all the power that I need. Don't you think, Peter... And if I wanted to, I could call down twelve legions of angels. I could have them all at my disposal. All I'd have to do is make one request to God and and He could do that for me. Don't you think that could happen? But instead, Jesus meekly allows the men to capture Him because He knows like we just read here in verse 54. How then will the Scripture be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? He recognizes that, that this life is not all that there is to live for. That there's more. That this battle is still going on, but it will finish one day. That this life is not all that there is. And if it were, then He could, at His disposal, bring all of these angels to protect Him. So Jesus gladly gives Himself up knowing that it's a part of God's plan. Notice in verses 50 and 52 of Mark chapter 14 that after Jesus' arrest, He is abandoned. Notice in verse 50 that the disciples abandoned Him. And they all left Him and fled. The crowd had abandoned Him They gave up on His purposes, on His teaching, on His powers. It's awful that Judas had abandoned Him in an eternal way. But here in verse 15, we find that no one is willing to follow Jesus to the death. Just as He had prophesied in verses 27-31, when they strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. You're not going to be able to stay around to the end. This is what Jesus had been warning them about. If you will if you will be alert, be on the alert against spiritual temptation to fall away. Then then these types of things won't happen. You won't give up despite the difficulties. And you can imagine that the disciples were probably fearful of their own capture, of their own arrest, that if they stuck with Jesus too long, they, in their association with Him, may be arrested with Jesus and have the same fate. And so in fear, they flee Him. Not only is He abandoned by the disciples, but also by this young observer whose name we do not know in verses 51-52. through So the young man was following Him wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. And they seized Him But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. Who is this young man? Well, the Scriptures don't tell us explicitly. In fact, this is the only Gospel that records this event. But many people believe, and I I, uh, tend to believe, I lean towards um, John Mark, the writer of this Gospel. And there are several reasons that... um, that commentators believe that this was Mark who was this young man. Number one, there seems to be no clear reason to mention this event other than that he's trying to include him in a humble way within his own Gospel. He doesn't record his name. He doesn't say anything good about himself necessarily. But he uses it uh, in order to just uh, tell what's going on and also be able to include himself in the story as it happened. Mark is mentioned nowhere else in the Gospel, in his own Gospel. So he he likely wanted to associate himself with Jesus, but out of modesty, he didn't include his own name. Now, we have record of this happening with other Gospels. For example, John. In his Gospels, if you're familiar with that, John never refers to himself as the apostle or the disciple John, besides when he gives the list of the disciples. Instead, he calls himself, in his gospel, the disciple whom Jesus loved. So he never goes by his own name. So Mark very well could have been doing the same thing. Further um, evidence points towards Mark as well, because, and this is more circumstantial evidence, and that is, that many people believe that the Lord's Supper that just happened, remember the timeline of what's going on, they, they have the Lord's Supper in this upper room whom, whose house we don't know who it is, but many people believe it's Mark's parents' house. Okay, So they have that Lord's Supper. And then after that, Judas leaves to go to the Sanhedrin to give Jesus over to them. And then they go out, that is Jesus and the other 11 disciples, go out to the Mount of Olives here at Gethsemane. And so likely, what, or possibly what could have been happen, happening is this: Judas leaves to, to have the soldiers to come and get Jesus, and they come back to Mark's house where the Lord's Supper likely was held. And it's late at night, you remember? Jesus had already been praying several hours at Gethsemane, so this whole mob comes to Mark's house, certainly must have awoke, awakened him. And of course, Mark. Um, wanting to find out what was going on and being concerned about what was going on, probably quickly grabbed a sheet, covered himself, and and ran along with the crowd to to be a silent observer. And obviously as he got close, he may have gotten too close and people may have recognized him as one who followed Jesus a little more closely than others. And so they seized him as well. And uh, as a result, he leaves his his linen sheet and, and runs away naked. Now the reason people think that he was wearing a sheet is because generally the outer garment was made of wool at that time and so for a person to have a linen sheet is probably someone who is wealthy and uh, that generally wasn't used as clothing. So that's why th- that's why this is more circumstantial. We don't have complete evidence. But that's there for, for um, for the benefit of, of the story to show that not only the, the, did the disciples abandon Him, but also this observer, apparently Mark. So imagine what's going on now that all of these close friends of Jesus have left. He's all alone among His captors. And when we would have expected at least that the people who were closest to Him to stick around. I mean, we can understand, you know, some of His worst disciples, Judas. Okay, we can understand that. Maybe some of the other ones that didn't have quite the same experiences as Peter, James, and John. At least them. They should have stayed with Jesus. And yet Jesus had invested their life, His life into them and they, He stood there all alone. And His departure from this earth would not be pretty. He was brought here to bear the wrath of God. He took upon Himself the curse that we deserved. And yet, through that very curse, the irony of the cross is that how despite its horror, it is actually a beautiful thing to us who are able to trust in Jesus Christ because the greatest horror in the life of Jesus becomes our greatest victory, our greatest joy, so, this passage, I think, helps us in several ways. Number one, we should not be discouraged. The disciples here are discouraged. They're shocked. They're devastated. Jesus is being led away to be killed. How could this possibly happen? It's as if their own family member is being kidnapped from them. They don't know when they can get him back. And when he dies, they're thinking it's over. He lost, the battle's over. And yet, Jesus knows and we now know that Jesus' departure was nothing like a kidnapping. It was nothing like a a terrible thing. We recognize now when we look look back on it that it was more like a father going off to work. That yes, he's going to be away for a while, but we expect him to return and he's going to return with great joy. And the time where He has gone is not an unprofitable time. It's actually a time of benefit both for Him and can be for us. Sure, we hate to see Him go. But we're happy to see Him return. It's not like a kidnapping. It's more like Dad going off to work. It's actually for our benefit and our advancement. So don't be discouraged. It may feel, feel as if the battle is being lost. It may feel as if God has somehow left the throne or gone on vacation or He's not there because it seems like my world is falling apart. And yet this passage teaches us, and I think throughout the rest of Scripture we find, that the departure of Jesus is actually a good thing for us. It helps us to long for that time when He will return and make everything right as He has promised to do. So don't be discouraged. Be encouraged. God is still on the throne, and this is all a part of His purposes. That's why Jesus says the Scriptures had to be fulfilled in this way. Secondly, we need to learn from the example of Christ that we should be calm under persecution. Jesus shows us how to do this under intense Persecution. He was no revolutionary. He performed no violence other than the cleansing of the temple. He, he, he acts calmly because He knows that this world is not the all that there is to live for. And so we don't have to force people to come to Christ. We don't have to force people to, to accept our views. Simply humbly and recognize that God is in control and He providentially, slowly works on people to bring about his purposes. And even those who do not bow the knee in this lifetime, we recognize that Jesus is coming back and he will make everything right. He will bring justice upon those who have opposed him. This is his promise that he says during his he tells the disciples during his ascension in Acts chapter 1 verse 11. Men of Galilee, this is actually the, the angel speaking, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you've watched Him go. So The point for us is we must be calm under persecution because we know that God is in control. We don't have to fear. We don't have to, to get all frazzled and figure out a way out of it. Sometimes the way out of it is, is right through it. And Jesus recognized this, that although He did desire to be taken from the judgment that was going to come upon Him through the cross, He recognized that ultimately the way out for Him was directly through persecution, directly through the worst type of suffering anybody could have. So we must be able to see beyond our circumstances to have an eternal perspective, to recognize that this life is not all that there is to live the disciples finally realize that, that Jesus had done this for a purpose, that, that He would come back. And they don't realize this really fully until after the resurrection when they point back to the times when He said, this temple will be destroyed and in three days I will bring it back. They recognize it then. And at that point, they're no longer moping around, feeling defeated. Instead, we find the disciples in the book of Acts and throughout the epistles They're going about the service of God with great joy and energized to do God's work because they know that this life is not all that there is. Don't be discouraged. This life is simply a means to an end and that is for us to come to a true knowledge of Christ and to bring as many people as we can with us. Thirdly, we need to understand from this passage that God's plan is best. Jesus said in verse 49 that the Scriptures had to be fulfilled. The departure of Christ is beneficial both for Him and for us. Since we are now made to be His ambassadors, His representatives, that we now represent God for Him. And so His departure is actually a good thing. And and it will ultimately result in Christ's glory and our glorification, that is our sanctification, our growth in godliness. It is best for both Christ and for us. His greatest defeat, we could say, becomes his greatest victory. That he is exalted above all creation and given a name above, above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Fourthly, we need to understand, and this goes along with what we've talked about before, and that is Christ is not defeated. He is not being defeated. Have you succumbed to the idea, the lie that comes from the very pit of hell that says that Jesus is losing? That the, the Christian life is not worth living. Have you succumbed to that? Do you believe that, that all that there is to live for is this life and this life only? We need to buck up. Take heart. Be on the alert. Recognize that Christ is not being fe- defeated. In fact, He has already won the victory. The battle is not over. Yes. The sin is always going to be there as long as we live. But Christ has always already won the victory. Let me conclude by reading for you 1 Corinthians 15, verses 56-58. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. You see, the death that threatens our life is dead. Christ conquered death and sin. There's no more sting in sin. There's no more sting in death. Because Christ is one. So don't be discouraged. God is still on the throne and you are part of His purpose if you have trusted in Jesus Christ. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, we thank You for this reminder this morning. I think at times we need to be reminded that You still are on the throne and that this world is not all that there is to live for. Sometimes we become so nearsighted and we begin to be discouraged and we fall away in the sense that we deny You and Your existence and we give up, we falter, we become complacent and apathetic in our lives. pray that You'd help us to take to uh, take this passage seriously and be calm under the persecution that we are facing. Help us not to think that that, that this is all that there is to live for, but help us to, to have a, a long-term perspective, a perspective that sees that Jesus will win the victory and that He will make everything clear and right. But until that time, our responsibility is to trust You even when things don't make sense. Give us the strength to do that and to continue on and to serve You with all that we have and to when we fall, get back up and to as Paul says, to be steadfast and immovable and always abounding in Your work. We need Your help. We need Your grace. Pour it upon us richly and don't stop pursuing us. Don't stop coming after us when we fall. Pray that You'd help us to take these truths and plant them deep in our hearts and to be concerned with nothing more than to see You honored through Jesus Christ our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.